For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Clancis, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his groovements and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time certain and forevermore the zealous of the Lord of hosts will do this. Hi, my name is Rob Penner and I'm one of the pastors here at Willingdon. I'll start today with the most typical of all Hebrew greetings, Shalom. When two Jewish people would meet on the road, one would say to the other, Shalom, or maybe Shalom Aleichem. The word Shalom means peace. The word Aleichem means upon you. And so through this greeting, they were saying, I wish that your life would be filled with peace. In different cultures, people greet one another in different ways. In our intercultural and multilingual Willingdon family, you will hear hola from the Spanish speakers, annyeonghaseyo from the Koreans, konnichiwa from the Japanese, and priet from the Russians. In the Chinese world, the typical greeting is, have you eaten yet? If you've ever enjoyed a Chinese banquet, often 12 courses, you won't be surprised that a people who have produced such a variety of sumptuous food would have this as their basic greeting. Why did Jewish people greet one another with the word shalom? It was one of the biggest words of their holy book, the Old Testament. And it was one of the things that they longed for most deeply. We usually translate the word shalom as peace, but it meant so much more than that. Shalom describes life as it's meant to be. Children are born into families with parents who love and nurture them. You leave your wallet on a park bench and no one walks off with it. The elderly person gets a seat on the bus. Everyone goes to bed with a full stomach. In a world of perfect shalom, there's no bars on our windows, no security guards, no locks on our doors, no racial tensions, no broken marriages, and if you can imagine it, no deadly diseases. Shalom. Genesis 1 describes God creating the world as making order out of chaos. In Genesis 3, when sin entered the world, the order reverted back to chaos. So we experience an absence of shalom. Children grow up in homes uh, that are broken. People steal our wallets. The elderly person is left standing on the bus. Many go to bed hungry. We have racial tensions and failing marriages. Shalom in the world has been broken by terrorists and triads, by you and by me. It's broken every day by most people in a myriad of ways. The Apostle Paul once said that, in fact, he was the world's greatest shalom breaker, the greatest of sinners. We constantly see our own hearts bent on breaking shalom when we call the other driver an idiot under our breath, when we judge a brother or a sister, when we fail to make peace with our spouses. The entire problem with sin in thought, word, and deed is that it breaks shalom. 
And it's this absence of peace that makes us so long for it. Well, on the night Jesus was born, the shepherds heard a choir of angels invoking peace on earth. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is well pleased. The angels pronounced shalom at the birth of Christ. Their announcement of peace on earth was rooted in the words of the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. Isaiah lived about 700 years before Jesus came into the world, but he prophesied about the coming of Jesus. Now, prophecy sometimes predicts the future, but it always speaks to the present. And the people of Isaiah's day were miserable. The dominant world power of the day was Assyria, and their armies were cruel and merciless. They were invading and controlling smaller nations. The land of Israel had become a battlefield. Assyrian armies were raping, killing, and plundering at will. No one was safe. Most of us don't know what it's like to live in a literal war zone, but it's a reality for many in the world. My father used to tell us stories about when he was a young boy in Ukraine, how soldiers would come onto their property and threaten his family, and how some neighbors were taken away and never heard from again. My dad's family eventually got on a train and fled for their lives. But there were no trains in Isaiah's day. It was difficult to flee for protection. Now, in the year 2020, the entire world has felt like a war zone. The major enemy to us has been an invisible one. COVID-19 has brought fear and death like few other enemies we've ever faced. And meanwhile, the normal battles continue. Cancer will claim 80,000 lives in our country this year. There are riots on the streets in many cities, and after our own homes, offices, or neighborhoods feel like war zones. So Isaiah began his prophecy with the words, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. When it feels like shalom is completely absent, the only thing that can sustain people is the hope that peace could somehow be restored. In a war zone, the lights have gone out. You can't see a way forward. You're groping along towards an uncertain future. And that word from Isaiah gave hope to these people walking in darkness. It didn't solve their immediate problem. The Assyrians were still banging at the door. But as people will tell you who have lived through literal wars, hope is vital. So to these people living in darkness, Isaiah will say, it's all going to be okay. Does it ever annoy you when someone comforts you in a way that, like that? You feel like everything's going downhill fast and your friend says, don't worry, it'll be okay. We usually don't find those words very helpful and they're often the words of an optimist. But there's a big difference between human optimism and Christian hope. Miroslav Volf is a Croatian theologian who grew up during the Serb-Croat conflict that dominated world news for the first half of the 1990s. He's become one of the premier Christian writers about peace in our generation. Volf writes about the difference between optimism and hope. Optimism has to do with good things in the future that are latent in the past and present. Hope, on the other hand, has to do with good things in the future that come to us from outside, from God. The future associated with hope is a gift of something new. The peace for which we hope comes from outside of us, outside of our own ability to either find it 
or make it. In those days of distress, Isaiah preached like a broken record to the people of Israel. Trust God. Trust God. Trust God. It looks like the world is falling apart. You can't see any light at the end of the tunnel, but keep trusting God. And he made this confession of faith in Isaiah chapter 26, 9, and 10. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. It's the message we need to hear at the end of 2020. The daily COVID numbers sometimes feel like a barometer for our emotions. Our level of anxiety can easily fluctuate along with those numbers. The numbers go up, we panic. The numbers, goes, the numbers go down and we feel more at ease. And while health officials present the dire situation, they do their best to help us feel optimistic. They say things like, we can do this together. A vaccine is on the way. Those messages are nice to hear, even if they're based in the uncertainty of human ability. But God will keep us in perfect peace if our minds are set on Him. True hope for lasting peace must come from outside of ourselves. So in this long exhortation that we call the book of Isaiah, the message about trusting God completely, Isaiah refers several times to the coming ruler. That great prophecy in chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, is a passage that serves as the opening movements for Handel's Messiah, one of the most well-known of all compositions. And this ancient prophecy echoes through the angels who appeared in the night sky when unsuspecting shepherds became swept up in a vision of God's glory. Isaiah had said that a light had dawned for those walking in darkness. And that light was a metaphor for hope. But on the hillside that night, a literal light shone for the shepherds. Imagine, after 700 years of waiting, these poor shepherds, one of the lowest of society's classes in those days, were the first to hear that Isaiah's ancient prophecy was being fulfilled. This message in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7 is one of the clearest descriptions of the character and mission of the coming Messiah, our Lord Jesus. Notice three big ideas from this ancient prophecy. First, Jesus personally engages us. He is not distant. To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. On the night of Jesus' birth, when the angels made that announcement to the shepherds, they said the same thing. A child is born for you. Now, there's a hint here about the kind of king that both the people of Isaiah's day and these shepherds could expect. This would be a king who they could call their own. The kings of Isaiah's time were usually accused of doing what kings often do, of living comfortably in their palaces while the common people went hungry and unprotected. The king born on Christmas, on the other hand, was born for us. He didn't come to live in a palace, but he came to share deeply in our human experience. His first bed was an animal's feeding trough, and he died on a Roman cross. We sometimes use the phrase, a man of the people, to describe a certain kind of political leader. It was one of the nicknames used for American President Thomas Jefferson. It means that even though this person is a leader, he really understands the common person, and the common person truly understands him. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. John chapter 1, verse 14. We call this the incarnation, the act of God becoming a human being, 
Unlike all other rulers of the world, Jesus did not come to first station himself above us, but he came to be with us to fully live the human experience. The light of the world came to experience our darkness. He was more than any other leader ever born, a man of the people. Even on a human level, we find it so hard to imagine how God could, would have to humble himself to become like us. Winston is one of the brothers in our Willingdon Church family, and he worked for 30 years as a senior trial crown counsel in BC's prosecution service. When he began his work, Winston found himself surrounded by what seemed to him at the time the vilest of all criminals. His caseload was mostly against those charged with horrible crimes against children and other vulnerable people. And the emotional pressure of being in the middle of deep depravity and pain often felt unbearable to him at, the at times. On the one side were the victims, abused children and spouses, grieving families, and he was able to see firsthand their pain and devastation. On the other side were the criminals who, to someone like Winston, who had never violated the criminal code himself, were people who seemed like monsters. And he's, as he describes this experience, one of the first lessons Winston learned as Crown Counsel was that there's no grades of sin, and that he could, in fact, take his place alongside even the worst criminals, for together they were the people for whom Christ died. And over 30 years, he learned how to become incarnate, so to speak, within a community that was very different from himself. How much greater was the gap between Jesus and humanity? How much more mind-boggling to imagine that the perfect Son of God became like us, but in order for there to be true and lasting peace, this had to happen. The peace would have to come from outside of us and work its way into us. And only the God who became like us could accomplish that. Dorothy Sayers was a British Christian writer. In 1941, at the height of World War II, her native England was in deep peril. And like the Israel of Isaiah's day, they feared the enemy outside and also like the Israelites were looking for courageous leadership from within. At the time, Sayer's play, The Man Born to be King, was broadcast on the BBC radio, and she wrote about the incarnation of Jesus. The incarnation means that for whatever reason God chose to let us fall, to suffer, to be subject to the sorrows and to death, he has nonetheless had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He himself has gone through the whole of human experience, from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and the lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation and defeat, despair and death. He was born into poverty, suffered infinite pain all for us, and thought it well worth his while. God thought that we were well worth his while. So he was readily born for us to get us out of the prison of fear and death, the truly great jailbreak of all time. God had to enter the prison and work from the inside. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 15 says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Second, Jesus personally carries us 
the government shall be upon his shoulder. And these two verses from Isaiah, the words peace and government are both used twice. Peace was in short supply and was the one thing for which the people of Israel most longed, and it was something their government just couldn't deliver. The kings were largely faithless and prayerless. They were poor decision makers. They were selfish. They were leaders who tended to care more about securing their own position than the people's well-being. They made the world more chaotic than peaceful. So this promise about the birth of a Savior would have been the one thing they most needed to hear, a leader who would govern well and who would actually bring shalom. No earthly government has ever been able to provide true shalom for its people. I lived for some years in a place where we weren't allowed to say anything negative about the government. And actually, a person could be put in jail just for speaking out. But in our Western democracies, we are free to criticize our governments, and we seem to make ready use of that freedom. (laughs) We complain that our governments run up the national debt They cater to certain groups. They can't solve the problems with health care and are blind to the issues in our own neighborhoods. And it doesn't matter who the particular face of the government happens to be at the time. We always seem to find something that they aren't doing right. But when we read the words that the government will be on Jesus' shoulders, it doesn't mean that he will balance the budget and solve the problems in health care. His rule is connected to his name. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is our ruler. He counsels perfectly. He's powerful and eternal. And his entire agenda is peace. These four names describe the way Jesus rules. What separates him from every other ruler is that he can oversee all at once the big issues of the entire universe and each of us in our unique concerns. Having already been on the inside, he knows our anxiety over unemployment, our fear that a strange lump may turn into something more serious, our sadness over a broken relationship, our desperation over what seems like a never-ending cycle of addiction. He not only knows us all from the inside out, he bears us in his arms, The government is on his shoulders. That means that Jesus personally carries every citizen of his kingdom. My oldest grandson, Noah, is four years old. He's active and sporty. He loves to run and kick soccer balls, (laughs) but he also really loves it when I hold him. And when I go to his house, he'll come to me and he'll want me to pick him up. Now, sadly, that's going to end at some point, either because he'll outgrow it or he'll become too heavy for me to lift. But when Jesus tells us to aspire to be like children, this is one thing that he does not want us to outgrow. He always wants us to come to him, to let him pick us up, to bear us in every way. Our problems, our worries, and even our sins are never too heavy for him to bear. One of the prayers that's most helped me find my way back to the mighty arms of Jesus is Psalm 131. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up, My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great or too marvelous for me, but I've stilled and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. Jesus speaks to each one of us personally the words of Matthew 28. Come to me, all you who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon me, upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble of heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Pastor John Piper lists five things that the Bible says Jesus will carry for us. Our sins, our anxieties, our burdens, our need for justice, and our entire lives. George Mueller was a man who lived in England in the 1800s. He spent most of his life dedicated to caring for orphans, uh, and he had cared for over 10,000 in his lifetime. He established 117 schools that offered Christian education to 120,000 students. Mueller was constantly in the place of trying to meet more needs than he had resources for. He became, has become a great example to generations of missionaries, Christian workers, an example of someone who prayed without ceasing and who truly learned to trust God to do the impossible. Mueller believed that the huge work he was called to do was not actually his responsibility to bear. <laughs> so once in the middle of a hectic time, when the orphanage faced uh, uncertainty, someone asked him how he could remain so peaceful. Mueller responded, I rolled 60 things onto the Lord this morning. <laughs> Is there any burden you need to roll onto the shoulders of Jesus today? Maybe a relationship or a fear or a sin? The government is on his shoulders. And third, Jesus' reign of peace will grow continually. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there shall be no end. It is the will of God that the reign of Jesus will never stop growing. And there's absolutely no way to thwart the will of God. That means the kingdom reign of peace won't happen all at once. Now, this was a big disappointment to the people of Jesus' day who had been waiting for the Messiah because they had hoped that the Messiah would ride in on a white horse and immediately destroy all enemies and establish peace for them once and for all. But Jesus likened his kingdom reign to that of a seed being planted. It's in the ground, something that you can't even see. You can walk by a seed that's been planted in the ground and not even notice that it's there. And he likened himself to that unnoticed seed. But it's only through that seed being buried in the ground that it's able to become something of value. The book of James says, A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. And he proved that he's the greatest son of God by becoming the greatest peacemaker through his death. The apostle Paul wrote, For in him, Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let me refer again to Winston, the brother in our church who worked as crown counsel. Over 30 years of persevering in the court system, Winston retired with great stories of redemption about how God had worked in him and how God had worked through him for the sake of both victims and criminals. He shares about how a man convicted of spousal abuse admitted his crime and sought to make amends, and about a young woman who had been horribly abused by her stepfather, finding freedom from bitterness and pain and eventually beginning her own family. For 30 years, Winston was like a seed planted in the soil of criminals and victims. 
It's the way of Jesus, for it's the very thing Jesus has done for us. And that seed embedded in the hostile soil of humanity 2,000 years ago, we can see how much his government has increased through the world. Because of Jesus, the souls of millions, maybe billions, now have an eternal hope. Because of Jesus, hospitals have been built. The sick have been made well. Orphans have found homes. Families have learned to forgive one another and be reconciled. You and I are now those seeds of peace, like our Lord Jesus, planted just where God wants us to grow. We, the body of Christ, continue to be the seeds and bear the seeds for the growing reign of shalom. In the middle part of the last century, a man named Clarence Jordan lived in the American South. He was white, a New Testament professor, and a farmer, But to help lift the rod of oppression from African-Americans at that time, Jordan started a community called the Koinonia Farm. It was a place for whites and blacks to live together, to be equals in society that largely lived as if one race was inferior. And his farm was repeatedly vandalized by white supremacists, but the Koinonia community would always rebuild. And one morning, after a particularly bad attack, when most of the buildings had been burned down, A reporter from the local paper came to Koinonia, and he asked Clarence Jordan a question. Mr. Jordan, about how successful would you say that your farm is now? Clarence Jordan recognized the voice of the man as one of those who had destroyed his property the night before, then wearing a white hood. And he looked at the man, and he responded, it's about as successful as the cross. Shalom can be our reality because this is the very name of our king. Peace in our lives and relationships is evidence that Jesus, the Prince of Peace, is truly reigning. Paul would later write that Jesus is our peace because he has made the two one. And again, he would write, the kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking, but about righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And right after saying those words, he urged the followers of Jesus to pursue what makes for peace. Jesus did not come to accomplish peace by getting to the bottom of things, but by placing himself at the bottom of things. The government rests on the shoulders of the one we call the Prince of Peace. He won no leadership debates, was never ahead in the polls, nor did he even try to take his position by force. His exaltation came as a result of truly being at the bottom of all things by becoming a seed that was planted in the ground. This is the way his kingdom was founded. It's the way his reign of peace will spread through us into the entire world. At Christmas, we go to him in the manger, and we also go to him at the cross. We share in his death, and we enjoy the harvest of life, his eternal life. Do you personally know the Prince of Peace, our Lord Jesus? He's the one who was born for us, and he extends the offer to each of us. Will you accept the gift of salvation? Will you submit to him as your king? If you've never entered into personal friendship with God, you can do so today by praying this prayer with me. Lord God, I thank you that you love me deeply, unconditionally, and eternally. Thank you that you sent your son into the world to be born among us, to live among us, to understand us, to die for us, and to rise again from the dead. And today I want to open up my heart 
as I recognize the gift that you have given, that salvation is only in Jesus, and I ask for forgiveness from my sins through the, in the name and through, and through the power of Jesus. And I ask that uh, you would enable me now by the power of your Spirit to submit to the Lord Jesus as my Lord, to live for you and to grow in friendship with you from this time forth for all of my days. I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So if you prayed that for the first time, to acknowledge Jesus as your Savior and Lord, let someone know. You can click the button at the bottom of this page or tell a friend. It's the beginning of a journey of following an absolutely trustworthy God through life. So as we close today, let me just pronounce this blessing, this ancient blessing from the Old Testament. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his countenance upon you and give you peace.